Good morning, Eastside family. We want to welcome all of you who stayed for the Memorial Day weekend in town. I'm very excited about what, what we have to share with you this morning during our sermon segment. Maybe you noticed a common theme that was going on this morning. You noticed the three wolf girls were up here, Georgia, Nicole, and Anna were, were reading, and then you noticed that their two sons were up here, Ben was up here with his older brother and they were sharing the thoughts for communion. We appreciate that from Ben and Daniel. Well, now his, their father um, is also going to share with us Thank this you. morning, Todd. I asked Todd about, I don't know, two or three months ago to share his testimony, his part of his life story. Because as we've been working through this series in the book of um, Proverbs on, on finances and money management and, and basically being good stewards of all that God is giving us and how all that relates to our relationship with God, and it directly does relate to that. We've looked at it in Scripture and what we see on paper, but Todd and George's life and their family's life is, this is what it looks like in real life. This is how that is lived out. This is how these biblical principles carry you through. And so Todd is going to help take these living words that we've looked at in Scripture and show how they've been so alive in his life. And in preparing for his lesson, he's starting us out this morning with a very deep video. So let's get started with that. Oh, I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? No, you make sure you have money, then you buy it. <clears throat> oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. Good morning. 
It's not often that you can show a Saturday Night Live clip on church on Sunday morning, but this one worked. It's kind of old, but it's pretty good. Eddie did ask me this morning to share a bit of our family life experiences. So we will call this Financial Lessons We Have Learned. This is our story. I'd like to start, though, by asking two questions. And hopefully over the next few minutes, either you'll be able to answer those questions for you and your family, or maybe at least begin the conversation. Why does it matter what we do with our money? Why does it matter what we do with our money? And what scares you or what scares us about our family finances? Dates in history tend to carry significant meaning. So what are some important dates in history? July 4th, 1776, U.S. Independence. December 7th, 1941, the Pearl Harbor attack, a day that will live in infamy. June 6th, 1944, D-Day, the Normandy Beach landings. November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. January 25th, 1998, the Denver Broncos win the first Super Bowl. <laughs> and September 11th, 2001, planes crash into the World Trade Center. We also have dates that are important to each of us personally, and they'll probably not mean anything even to the person sitting next to you. And personally, I have a few of those dates. February 3rd, 1973, I was born. August 25th, 1986, I was baptized. May 10th, 1996, George and I were married. February 28th, 2000, Daniel, our oldest child, was born. We were living in Searcy, Arkansas at the time. I was a manager with J.C. Penney. However, my goal was to be a FBI special agent. I was born and raised on the mission field. My parents met on a Stanley ship campaign to Europe in 1969. They got married and moved to Belgium in 1971, where they served for over 20 years in French-speaking Europe. During one of our U.S. furloughs, we had a family vacation to Washington, D.C. We visited the FBI building, and it was then that I decided that I would one day be an FBI agent. With that in mind, I attended Harding University with, as an accounting major. That, was one of the most that is one of the most common degrees accepted by the FBI for special agents. However, after about 12 hours of C's, I decided that I probably needed to change my major and did to business management. In 1998, I began the lengthy application process with the FBI. And because of my fluency in French from growing up in Belgium, I passed the first of two phases of testing. In the midst of applying for the FBI, our church offered a class on how to manage, manage finances. Daniel had just been born, and we thought it would be a good idea to take the class. I wasn't in my dream job yet, and I wasn't making the big bucks. Um, but several of our friends were taking the class, and we respected the people who were teaching the class. So we took the class. This class allowed George and I to begin a common language with our money. It helped us to find a plan that would allow us to cope with life events. It helped guide us through into an understanding of important principles. Growing up on the mission field 
my family viewed money as something to safeguard, to hold on to. The reason was that my dad was paid in U.S. dollars, which meant we couldn't predict how the currency exchange rate would affect our income, since it had to be converted into Belgian francs for us to be able to live, and this was before the euro. And it did affect, it did affect things, sometimes as much as 20% up or down from one month to the next. George's family viewed money as something to enjoy and appreciate as one had it. They were able to enjoy regular vacations and live the average American lifestyle. So at the very beginning of our marriage, we approached money from two different directions. And during this Financial Peace University class, we learned a few things. Let's start with spending. While most of us have learned how to save and invest, most of us have not learned how to spend. Now, most of you will probably say, oh, we can do that quite well. But obviously, with nearly 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, we have not learned how to spend. Living paycheck to paycheck means that if a significant financial event happens in our life, let's say the washer and the dryer go out, we would not be able to replace them with money on hand. Imagine this. Add up what you are paying someone else right now, and let's not worry about the mortgage. But add up what your monthly payment is on your car or cars, your monthly payment on your credit card or cards, your monthly payment on anything else that you're making a payment on. If you didn't owe that money to other entities, wouldn't you have money to help others, to pay for vacation and not have it follow you home? Or wouldn't it be fun to walk up to somebody here at church that you know has either lost their job or is facing some other financial crisis and be able to hand them maybe $1,000 just because you had it? Having even $1,000 on hand allows us to more easily cope with those emergencies that seem to always come up. Most of our financial difficulties have come about because we had too little set aside for an emergency. So we put things on credit cards. It is a slow process. Financial stability is a marathon, not a sprint. But we don't like to wait. There's a reason we like microwaves instead of ovens. And we only have have so many rich uncles that are going to die and leave us money. So our wealth building capabilities usually come from our income. But why do we want to have the same lifestyle as our parents today when it took them 25 to 30 years to get there. A big piece of gaining financial freedom is getting out of debt, and it takes time. And can we speed things up? Maybe a little bit. We can increase our income by working overtime or second job, and it won't be forever. I asked our kids a few days ago about their views on money. More precisely, I asked them what money meant in our family. And the overarching theme was that they had what they needed, just not always what they wanted. Wants and needs are actually simply choices we have to make. Usually it isn't even a decision between something good or bad, simply something good or something better based on the plan that we are following. I want a 2019 twin turbocharged 420 horsepower Porsche 911 Carrera 4S, blue. I need a 2011 120 horsepower Ford Fiesta that gets over 30 miles to the gallon because we drive all over town and we need fuel efficiency. 
What do we need? Often these choices are going to carry emotions and sometimes very strong emotions with them. Do I need the iPhone 10 with unlimited data plan? Or is the 6 with 2 gigabytes of data enough? Unlimited is less hassle. With 2 gigabytes, though, I'm going to have to keep an eye on it. And did I mention we have teenagers? Is it cheaper to buy a pizza or make one? Do I have to get a gift for everyone in the family for Christmas, birthdays, anniversaries, Father's Day, Mother's Day, and graduation? Do I need cable or satellite? Or would streaming or even just antenna be enough for a little bit? Or do I need to eat out as often? In Philippians 4, Paul is writing to the Christians of Philippi. This is what he says. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So what is the secret? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Does this mean that we can never have the things that we want? It doesn't mean that we can never have the things we want. But it does mean that we may have to delay our wants to fulfill our needs for a time. And that time will probably be longer than we want it to be. Thus the secret of being content. Does that mean that I look down on those who are wearing name brand clothes, that a Christian should not have nice things? Absolutely not. And we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But make sure you have the nice things and they don't have you. Zig Ziglar said, if you do the things that you need to do when you need to do them, then someday you can do the things you want to do when you want to do them. And back to our kids for a moment. They are content, but they do grow. I found out that if you don't feed your kids, it's actually considered child abuse. So our kids do require new clothes on a regular basis because high water pants are not in fashion right now. And we all need to eat. In March of 2002, I was flown to Kansas City for my interview with the FBI. I began the application process in 1998, and this is now 2002. This was the second phase of FBI testing, and passing the second phase means that I would have to report to Quantico, Virginia at the FBI Academy within 60 days. I didn't pass phase two. I had now spent about 10 years working towards that goal. What was I supposed to do now? I knew that I didn't want to stay in retail. Remember I said I was working for JCPenney. When Anna, our first daughter, was born, I was only able to take one day off because it was holiday season. That was not what we wanted for our family. So in 2003, I resigned from JCPenney and moved to a corporate training role with a hospital in Arkansas. I took a significant pay cut, but because of the financial path we were on and the cost of living in Arkansas, we were able to make it work. So in 2002, Anna was born. During this time, we were actually house-sitting for relatives. Most of our belongings were in storage, and our storage unit got broken into, and many items were taken. This was my first realization that we had a bunch of stuff. How did I know that? 
We had to list all the things that were stolen for the police report and for the insurance claim. And we couldn't remember a lot of the things to put on that list. In 2004, Nicole was born. And in 2006, along came Benjamin. As you can see, money didn't keep us from having children. Our family continued to grow. Now, I did have a great discount on labor delivery costs because I worked at a hospital. But because we were having kids, that did mean that we had less discretionary income to do other things. It was a choice we made. In the summer of 2008, Daniel and I were able to visit family in East Africa. And if you're trying to find where Daniel, uh, Daniel and I are in this picture, we're the one with the plaid button-up shirts. We had an awesome trip. I was able to speak directly to neighbors and to local church leaders because the country of Togo was a previously French-speaking colony. This was definitely a spiritual high. And God knew we needed that high. Because five days after coming back from that trip to Africa, I was fired from my job. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, Georgia had been praying for two years that I would be fired. But that's a story for another time. So I was fired. Five years on the job. You hand in your keys, your ID badge. You fill up a box with your personal effects, and security escorts you out. You have to drive home now and tell your wife that you, can no longer, that you are no longer able to provide for your family. Something else we learned in our financial peace class was that life throws you curveballs. When one is living paycheck to paycheck and a major life crisis happens, two things actually happen. One is the life crisis. The second one is the financial crisis. Practically, imagine the bottom falls out of your hot water heater. The first crisis, the life crisis, is that you have no hot water and you have a flooded basement. The first crisis brings on the second crisis if you don't have the money. How are you going to replace the hot water heater and repair the water damage? In my case, I no longer had a job, but we had four months of savings set aside. We had the life crisis, but didn't have the money crisis. A blessing also was our church family in Arkansas. Within a few hours of being fired, I was able to meet with a godly group of men, the elders of the church we were uh, attending, and they began fervently praying for our family. Plug into church, into community, and have that network of brothers and sisters. It is very important. So my full-time job was now looking for a job. And so I spent two to three months sending out resumes, but nothing was happening. This was 2008. This was the heart of the global financial crisis. I was also able to tap into the career center at Harding. And during one of the meetings, with the career counselor asked me where George and I had thought about living. And I told Deb, the career counselor, that we had considered Colorado. Georgia had grown up in Littleton, and I had visited Colorado. My brother had been stationed here a few times, and we had friends here. She, says that she suggested I move to Colorado. I reminded her I didn't have a job. How could I live in Colorado if I didn't have a job? Deb looked at me squarely in the eyes and said, you don't have a job here either. So I called my friends, Matt and Tammy Ogren, who live here in the Springs. Tammy and I had actually grown up together 
uh, on the mission field, me in Belgium and Tammy in France. And I asked for a couch for a few weeks while I job searched. So in September of 2008, I drove from Sochi, Arkansas to Colorado Springs. When I got here, though, Matt and Tammy told me they had something better. Bryce and Lavora Gates had their fifth wheel trailer parked in their garage, and I could live there for the next few weeks. I'm very thankful to Bryce and Lavora Gates. I would talk to Georgia regularly. We knew we only had about four months of savings, but she was letting me know that there were checks coming in from the church that we were attending at the time. One that stood out was for $888.88. Somebody had fun that day. During one of those phone conversations, I was, also, I was walking in the Gates' neighborhood, and it had been three or four months since I'd been fired, and Georgia asked me if maybe it was time to come back to Arkansas. This is what I was looking at as I was talking to her. And I said, nah, I'm not moving back to Arkansas. It's going to work out. My comfort, though, was in the words of Psalms 125, and we actually sang it this morning. Those who trust in the Lord are like... Those who trust in the Lord are like Pike's Peak, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. That verse was a lie for me here. Towards the end of 2008, Doug Thorburn came up to me here at church, right back there in the center aisle. He was going to be working on a contract for a year or two in California. Would I be interested in house-sitting for him and have my family join me? Uh, yeah. So George and the kids joined me in December 2008. Our family is very thankful for Mr. Doug. Within a month, I was also able to find a job that allowed for an income. And about a year later, in early 2010, I began a job in my field of corporate training and development with a large nonprofit here in town. I would love to say that our family is now debt-free because we haven't had any other life crises. But that isn't the case. So sometimes you need a little inspiration. We have our heading. Here we go! We have learned that we have to trust in our Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. We are to make plans and seek God's direction when making those plans. I believe we should live with a compass instead of a road map. God's, re God's word reveals to us the direction we should be heading. We have our heading. Here we go. Proverbs 3, 4, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. I trust God. But I honestly don't understand everything that happens in my life. Even over the last few years, we've continued to have our share of life crises. 
In the summer of 2010, Anna, our oldest daughter, was in a truck accident where the truck she was uh, traveling in rolled four times. Everyone survived, and thankfully, she's completely recovered from five compressed vertebrae, a bruised lung, and several lacerations, scrapes, and bruises. In the summer of 2011, I suffered a stroke. I had a medullary infarction that affected my speech and motor skills. I confirmed my near complete recovery 363 days later by climbing Pikes Peak with Daniel. In the summer of 2012, Georgia suffered a ruptured colon requiring two surgeries. She has now recovered. We have four kids. We've had several ER visits. All of our grandparents and several other family members have passed away. And while this didn't necessarily have financial impact on us, it did definitely have emotional effects on our family. We've had several friends, longtime friends, divorce. We've even had some major legal bills. We've had major car repairs and had to replace a car after an accident. And unfortunately, about two months ago, I was laid off. Financial peace allows for a life crisis to happen, but not also involve a financial crisis. I'm a planner. I somewhat look forward to putting together our budget every month. This is something that I strongly believe the husbands and wives should do together. The purpose of doing the budget is to spend our income on paper before the month actually happens so that we know where our money is going, which means that George and I know where our money is going and we have agreed to it before we spend it. It is important for us to be working on this together. When I had my stroke, there was a period of time that we didn't know if I was going to make it. Georgia at one point expected I was going to require round-the-clock medical care because one side of my body was paralyzed. Spouses need to be on the same page. And I know one of you is the nerd, the bookkeeper, and the other one isn't, and that's fine. Both of you don't have to have all the details or create the 16-page budget Excel spreadsheets, but you both need to know what is going on. You both need to know where your money is going. You both need to know where the other one is spending money. As I mentioned, I got my job with a local nonprofit in early 2010, and that was a difficult year as it pertained to life events. Anna's accident was in August of that year. We also lost two of our friends in 2010. One in a car accident, Trey, he was 32, left behind a wife and a young son. The other, Kenny, was 35. He was a helicopter pilot for a medical ambulance company, and his helicopter crashed as he was on a run to pick up a patient. He left behind, he left behind a wife and three kids. Kenny and his wife had helped us financially before I came out to Colorado. They had also gone through Financial Peace University a few years earlier and were now in a position to help others. At this point, a few other questions come to mind. Does your spouse know your online banking password? Do you have a will? Do you have life insurance? It's that insurance that isn't for you, but for your survivors. And if you were to die tomorrow, what is the financial situation you would be leaving your family in? 
Walking out of the lawyer's office a few years ago, holding our newly drawn up wills, Georgia looked at me and said, now you can die. <laughs> I know what she meant. Men and women are different, especially when it comes to money. Men, here's a little bit of insight. Women physically and emotionally need financial stability. Things like a budget and having your wills give them peace and comfort. Ask her. We also need to be reminded that God owns everything in this world. We may think or feel that our stuff belongs to us, but God says clearly in his word that it really belongs to him. Here are a few examples. Psalms 24 and 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy 10:14, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Haggai 2:8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Silver and gold sounds like money to me. Money or having money is not evil. Being wealthy is not evil. In 1 Timothy 6, we all know that, we, that because we read that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Think of a brick. With a brick, we can do good by building a clinic in Guatemala or a zoo or a, zoo or a school in Zambia. Or we can do evil with it by throwing it at someone or breaking the plate glass window of a storefront. But the brick itself, such as money, is not evil. It is what we do with it. Like I said, we aren't debt-free. We were for about four months in 2014, but life continued to happen. We don't own a home yet. Some say that we should buy a house because of what we could save. True, I'm not building up equity because I am renting. But because of our current financial situation, if my hot water heater goes out, I can call my landlord and he fixes it. I can move when I need to and not worry about selling the house that I am leaving. We do plan on owning one day when we can afford to maintain a house. In the meantime, we've gotten creative. We had a young married couple live in our basement for five years. Living within one's means, regardless of we're making $250,000 a year, $75,000 a year, or $30,000 a year, is not always convenient. It takes planning such as coordinating who needs the one and only family car. It also usually means cooking at home, even on those nights when no one feels like cooking. Georgia is thankful that I like leftovers. But we are living by principles that we learned nearly 20 years ago. This allows us to have a positive outlook on life as we are working a plan. In Matthew 6, and I'll actually take just the last two verses, 33 and 34, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Having a plan doesn't do away with worry, but it does allow us to be less anxious. And if I'm not supposed to be anxious and I'm not supposed to worry, then what am I supposed to do? Shout for joy the Lord all the earth. 
worship the Lord with gladness. Before him, come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.